You are tuned into the State of Cannabis News Hour, where industry leaders, regulators, and lovers of cannabis gather collectively to move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Professionals and candy curious alike can tune in to hear leading cannabis experts share and discuss headlines, critical industry issues, social topics, and more. Hi, and welcome to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we bring you all the top stories you need to know and talk about them for four minutes and 20 seconds. We are a group of experts in different cannabis spaces with a wide diversity of perspectives and life experiences. Our news is bite-sized and infused with a nice mix of facts, opinions, and a pinch of humor. It's Thursday, June 2nd, 2022. This is episode number 293. I'm Susan Sorries, the founder of the State of Cannabis News Hour, author of the children's book, What's Growing in Grandma's Garden, and Cannabis's Favorite Grandma, aka Nanogram. If you're listening to the podcast, the show is live every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on Clubhouse. Spark it up with us and over 31,000 State of Cannabis News Hour members if you want to be an audience participant. Otherwise, please subscribe to support our show. We'd love to hear from you, so please leave us a review. Today we're talking about misleading weed labels a new report about taxes and craft cannabis cultivators, what to do if your child eats some edibles, Michigan's first cannabis lounge, the DOJ's stance on a pot case is unusually weak, Laura Ingram trying to blame mass shootings on weed, Spain looks at legalizing medical cannabis, cops punished Cops are punished after arresting a woman for growing a single plant and many other frosty nuggets. So stay tuned for the full 60 minutes of the State of Cannabis News Hour. The following program contains coarse language and nudity. Viewer discretion is advised. Audience, feel free to raise your hands if you want to weigh in on a headline after it's been read, and we'll try to bring you up to the stage. Keep it brief and relevant, or you might get the gong. Kicking off the show today is Rico Lamite. He likes to ask the tough questions that the mainstream media refuses to ask. The self-proclaimed dopest dad alive is here to encourage other dope dads. Find him on TEDx or at one of his Cannavision events, but always find him here every weekday as co-producer of the State of Cannabis News Hour. I can't wait to talk about your story, Rico. What you got? So mine's... Um from the Hill by William Villancourt or Valancourt. Laura, Ingr- Laura Ingram hunts for the link between pot and mass shootings. And she thinks that uh, Beto O'Rourke and liberals should be focusing on pot psycho- psychosis and the violent consequences of marijuana legalization rather than gun control. Fox News primetime talking head, well-known dog whistler, habitual button pusher and line stepper, Laura Ingram, for once Tuesday evening, decided to ask the tough question many have shied away from when it comes to the recent slew of mass American shootings. Was it the weed? In an Ingram Angle Reefer Madness segment, I'd say rivals the best of gems produced in 1930s Prohibition's peak era. She's looking to expose the well-researched link. I say that with air quotes there. The well-researched link between cannabis legalization and mass shootings. Of course, conservative commentators heavily funded by the NRA and gun rights organizations want to avoid any meaningful conversations about gun control or reforming access to high-powered weapons and ammunition. So what do they have left to blame it on? Marijuana. In an effort to steer the broader conversation and analysis of last week's Uvalde, Texas, uh, elementary school tragedy away from Texas gubernatorial candidate Beto O'Rourke's recommendation of getting serious about gun uh, control and reform, Ingram decided to take the scientific route. She brought on special guest and self-proclaimed cannabis expert, Dr. Russell Kamer, who's the medical director of Partners in Safety, a consulting firm providing occupational health services, DOT, physicals, and drug and alcohol testing guidance for large corporations and government. And um, you can find the full segment in the link provided for the sake, but for the sake of time, I hand selected a few gems for everyone to enjoy. Now, the next time you hear Democrats claim that Republicans or pro-Second Amendment types don't care about children or their safety, I want you to do one thing. I want you to laugh in their faces because they're the ones who don't care about the kids. Their policies help create the fertile ground from which some of the most 
the nation's most violent figures have emerged. Now, of course, they ignore any of the cultural and societal issues simmering beneath the surface and instead accuse conservatives of refusing to compromise on guns. Well, very quickly, maybe more folks would be willing to compromise on guns if Democrats themselves uh, hadn't told us what their real goal really is. I just took the position that may not be politically popular, maybe too honest, that not only should no one be able to purchase an AR-15, I don't think that the people who have them right now in civilian use should be able to keep them. We need a moratorium, perhaps, on gun sales. Um, we need to, who will say on this network or any other network in the next few days, it's time to repeal the Second Amendment? She then went on to bring her guest up to the stage. And I have a little clip from that as well. Well, again, it was initially reported that he was a user. In fact, he got angry that his grandmother and his mother didn't want him to use marijuana. But again, we don't know more. It was just mysteriously taken out of an article in the New York Times. But why aren't people in general not talking more about the pot it was initially reported that he was a user. In fact, he got angry that his grandmother and his mother didn't want him to use marijuana. But again, we don't know more. It was just mysteriously taken out of an article in the New York Times. But why aren't people in general not talking more about the pot psychosis, violent behavior? In studies, it's very clear that the use of high-potency marijuana is strongly associated with the development of psychosis. The community is well aware of. Yeah, you get the sense that the billions of dollars on the line are more important than our kids and what's happening, especially to young men in the United States who are frequent users of this high potency of THC that's now in marijuana products sold legally in dispensaries across the United States. I mean, this at the very least needs a, a serious national conversation. All right, so laugh all you wanted the absurdity. Um, it's very nauseating to even listen to the full segment. It's nine minutes uh, overall. Uh, but, the but at averaging 2.5 million viewers on 55 telecasts daily, Ingram Angle is consistently in the top five for cable news programming, along with Tucker Carlson, Sean Hannity, Jesse Waters, and Brett Bayer, all at Fox News. And she is the top-rated female lead of all time. So she and her stable mates are the biggest names in mainstream news, reaching the most people on a daily basis with a rapidly loyal fan base. And these are the messages that they are peddling. Does the Ingram angle or her guests have any valid points here? Um, and how do we combat this type of unchecked misinformation from being spread on such a grand scale? I'm very interested in hearing the reactions from our uh, from our fellow correspondents as well as listeners in the audience. This is Rigo Lamit, dopest dad on the street for State of Cannabis News Hour. Just gonna say that uh, uh, Laura Ingram, with that type of type type of piece that we all know is just total fake news. But secondly, I'd like to point out that there is a state that has uh, cannabis on the books and has gone a step further to say that all of their residents don't have to worry about their guns being taken away because of their use of cannabis. Point to the state of Oklahoma right now, where that is the reality. And if there is zero case studies from the state of Oklahoma that cannabis cr causes mass shootings, we all know that her shit is total bullshit and fucking nothing more than fake news. Thank you, Rico, for holding your nose and, you know, listening to that and playing for it. It just shows the, the actual bullshit that comes from that show. Just constant stream of misinformation. Yeah, pot kills, of course. We all know that. What about alcohol? Holy crap. How many crimes have been committed but anyway, thank you for just high underscoring this. It's, um, it's just total drivel. I think we all get that. I mean, the fact that she's reaching such a broad audience. So this is what we're up against heading into the midterm elections. We want to get our messaging out. We want to make sure people get good information. But they're bringing out these quack doctors with clear conflicts of interest. Um, you know, it's not hard to follow the money when you see all the commercials uh, that are coming from the NRA, the, all the commercials that are coming from gun rights groups. And you have people uh, like this gentleman, the doctor that she brought on that has all these big government contracts uh, for alcohol and drug testing. You, you know where the money's coming from, but how do we combat any of this rhetoric when you know like people are going to get hurt as a result? 
So the trick that they used here, this is Dr. Talleyrand, the trick that they used here is that they say cannabis is associated with psychosis and psychosis is associated with violence. But when you make the direct link to cannabis and violence, you see that cannabis is not associated with violence. Actually, it's associated with reduced violence. So it's misinformation completely. Hey, good morning. This is Dr. Felicia speaking. I'm not very concerned about this this piece because I think that the 30 percent, 25 to 30 percent of the people who look, listen to Fox News are pretty much lost anyway, and you're not going to change their mind about anything. So I think most people who have a clue and look at the evidence objectively understand that cannabis has a calming, sedating effect unless you're by it. In general, overall, people are more calm and easygoing. Most cops will prefer somebody who just smoke weed to get into their cruiser than someone who's violent and, and, and reeking of alcohol. So I'm not concerned personally. Yeah, I mean, I'm, only, I'm concerned because it does reach such a broad audience and a lot of the people who are watching are of the reefer madness generation. I mean, these are generally older viewers with very conservative views and very little personal experience. So I think that, you know, it is something to be concerned about because those people are still voting. So I think it's good to talk about it, expose it for what it is. And I appreciate you bringing this, Rico. I know, Dr. Felicia, I think you not being concerned with it and, and kind of your kind of, and that's, that's where we need to focus with comprehensive messaging that actually makes sense is to those communities that watch Fox News and others need to pander to CNN or MSNBC, which on top of it is the lowest rated news in the nation. I'll, I'll definitely agree with that. Um, we do have to worry about this kind of stuff. This is the kind of shit that got Donald Trump all of his bullshit conspiracy theories like, like out on the front page. This is what Fox News they're at the top of the, all the ratings. They're pushing out all this, all this bullshit propaganda, the QAnon, like all that, all that crazy shit. And this is what we're up against going into these midterm elections, um, going into legal uh, legalization, and and a lot of this stuff can form the next policy. Sean Hannity, was, he had Donald Trump on speed dial, and a lot of the shit that he put out there. Uh, um, into the ears of the nation, to the ears of the world, were direct speaking points from Fox News. The reasonable people, but the reasonable people outnumber these people. If, if the reasonable people go to the polls and vote, they will get the leaders that reflect their beliefs and priorities. But policy doesn't necessarily reflect reasonable people. It's, uh, it doesn't even necessarily reflect public opinion. So you can have a majority of Americans understanding that this is ridiculous, but the policy will still say something else in some cases. Yeah, I mean, I, I have to say that I believe that the Republicans have insulated themselves from voter scrutiny and backlash for these off, off popular, uh, unpopular perspectives and rules, new laws and regulations. Um, because of the gerrymandering. So even, you know, and, and also because they can really motivate people to get out to vote with this kind of alarmist fear mongering. I don't know. 100%. I, 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 you know, I, I understand not really being worried about it, but I'm, I think it's definitely something we do, we do need to discuss and we need to address. What we really need to do is we need to find a Freedom of Information Act with the state of Oklahoma to petition how much gun violence that has happened that's associated with cannabis consumers. Okay. Yeah, I keep it moving here. Um, definitely a conversation we need to keep on having because we're going to see a lot more of this um, on, on the biggest of levels. So we got we, we got to prepare. All right, so um, up next, the industry's longest continuously operating retailer packed his bags, gassed up the private jet with subs subsidized jet fuel he claims not to be from Russia. And he touched down in London town, the socialist paradise that he claims it is not and is teaching the United Kingdom how to identify Booth. Jason Beck, what do you have for us? That is so true. The capitalist country, not a socialist country. But I am going to tell you this, is the private jet is gassed up with subsidized fuel, and we're having an amazing... But nonetheless, my story today goes to a far, far away land of Thailand, where cops 
punished after arresting a woman for growing a single cannabis plant. In a sign of rapidly shifting attitudes toward weed in Thailand, four cops were disciplined on Tuesday after arresting a woman in her home for owning a small cannabis plant. The arrest, which was met with harsh criticism, came just over a week before the country attempted to criminalize cannabis as Thailand's government breaks ground in Asia and attempts to cash in on the plant. According to local reports, 56-year-old Porn Pimal Proakoa Pol was greeted by plainclothes police officers at her home in Chonburi province on Monday. They had initially said they were investigating a case of missing motorcycles, but arrested her after spotting a potted cannabis plant in her bedroom. The plant, which weighed about 20 grams and stood around 30 centimeters, before five or six leaves. Despite her neighbor's attempts to stop the arrest, the officers insisted on taking Porn Pimal to the local station. Porn Pimal was released the next day, but not before spending the night in a cell after her husband, Chu Panokopol, was able to raise the 15,000 baht, basically 437 US dollars needed for a bail. Her husband later told reporters that they were using the plant to relieve high blood pressure and diabetes. They also sometimes added it to her food. After Porn Pamal's arrest was reported in several local news outlets, it was announced on Tuesday that the officers involved were transferred to inactive posts, a vague form of punishment which usually sees police bound to desk jobs. In light of the incident, Chonburi Provincial Commander uh, Atashit Kahujian urged officers to exercise judgment before they arrested cannabis growers. The cops were confused between the old and the new cannabis laws, he added. Porn Pamal's arrest comes just one week before Thailand's much-publicized decriminalization of cannabis is set to take effect on June 9th, which will allow people to grow unlimited amounts of cannabis at home. In December of 2018, Thailand made global headlines by legalizing cannabis for medical use. Then in February of this year, public health minister Antun Shambhakarl uh, signed a measure removing cannabis from the country's narcotics list. We will try to be as relaxed as possible so people can have access to cannabis, said Antun, who is the forefront of a governmental push to develop the local cannabis industry in Thailand, which has become the first country in Asia to de facto decriminalize the plant. Last month, Antun and, uh, even announced that the government would be giving away one million free cannabis plants for citizens to grow at home once restrictions on cannabis possession are lifted come June 9th. In anticipation of the intimate liberalization, Thailand's Food and Drug Administration announced on Wednesday it was launching the Plok Ganja, which stands for Plant Ganja, a phone app and website where people can register their homegrown cannabis. The app will allow authorities to keep track of where and how much cannabis is being grown while also serving as a platform for businesses to source raw cannabis. But despite the government's uh, eagerness to legalize cannabis, most prominently with the liberalization of plant ownership, activists point to the legal ambiguity that still surrounds its use. Thailand's government is attempting to position itself to reap the economic, economic benefits of cannabis through the medicine and tourism, while still discouraging its own citizens from indulging in adult use of the drug. The Delicate Balance Act has led to seemingly contradictory legislation. While growers can produce unlimited amounts of the plant at home, it is only permitted for medical purposes. Under current legislation, it is illegal to consume more than trace amounts of cannabis while extracts containing more than 0.2% THC uh, are banned. In recognition of these legal inconsistencies, the Thai cabinet has said it is racing to introduce laws before June 9th that took that are look set to, per to permit consumption of cannabis at home. Whether this will extend to private businesses remains unclear. And they say our principle is that we choose to use marijuana to get the maximum benefits, but we will control the use and will cause, and will cause punishment, said a member of parliament, Sopakai Jasmine, in a Facebook post on Wednesday. In fact, we trust the Thai people that everyone is smart enough to take care of their own lives. Well, I wish more American politicians thought that. And this is Jay across the pond for the State of Cannabis News Hour. That poor plant only had five leaves. <laughs> that's so sad. Yeah, that's great that the Thailand government trusts their people to take care of their own lives. Yeah, uh, Susan, it sounds like the uh, Charlie Brown Christmas tree of pot plants <laughs> was taken from yeah. this boy. And that poor woman spent the night in jail for that. Come on.
What's <sighs> up in the memo late, though? It seemed like every time there seems to be some advancement of marijuana laws, <laughs> the cops still are out there breaking the law, essentially. They can't help themselves. But let's keep smoking the news. We've got a lot of stories today. He's the founder of Medican and co-founder of the nonprofit data-driven can- cannabis research organization, CESC. And his words carry a bit more weight than your average keyboard warrior. Up next is Dr. Jean Talleyrand. What do you have for us today, Doc? Thanks, Rico. Uh, good morning and good afternoon, everyone. My headline today is what to do if your child eats a marijuana edible. This was written on WebMD by Alexandra Benesek and reviewed by Dr. Dan Brennan. Recently, there have been several articles published on kids eating cannabis products or bringing them to school and sharing them with friends. As cannabis becomes more accessible, these stories will become common. This article describes cannabis edibles as sweet or savory snacks that look just like regular candy, chips, cookies, or juices. That's very true. Cannabis can be infused in anything. However, I don't recommend reading this article. It is alarmist and misleading, but I think the topic is important. Kids put anything in their mouth, especially when they are between the ages of two and five. The most common and concerning childhood poisonings are prescription medicines, especially pain medicines, antihistamines, or anti-anxiety medicines, cleaning substances, which are often stored under the bathroom or kitchen sink and easily accessible to to young children, foreign bodies like buttons or batteries, and vitamins that are made to look like candy or gummies. Since the repeal of prohibition, there have been more calls to poison control centers, more emergency department visits, and more hospitalizations from cannabis exposures. For example, in Ohio, poison control center consultations on cannabis increased from 77 in 2019 to 217 in 2020. Of the cases that could be followed, 84% were seen in the emergency department, 25% were admitted for observation, and 10% were admitted to intensive care units. The increase in exposure was about the same for adults and kids. No deaths were reported. I would like to address a couple of misleading statements in the WebMD site. Coma, cannabis and coma rarely, if ever, happens in kids. On the other hand, 28% of synthetic cannabinoid users do experience central nervous system depression or coma. As a reminder, synthetic cannabinoids like K2 or Spice were originally produced and made accessible by pharmaceutical drug companies. Brain abnormalities, accidental cannabis ingestion does not cause structural brain abnormalities, Brain abnormalities and cognitive deficiencies have been reported in regular, heavy, adolescent cannabis users. Most of the studies are observational or retrospective and cannot rule out other confounding reasons for cognitive deficiencies like social circumstances. So what to do if your child accidentally eats a cannabis product? The first thing to do is to not let it happen. Prevention is the key. Keep your prescription medicines, cleaning products, vitamins, and cannabis products locked up in safe places. Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, a well-respected pediatric hospital, reminds us that prescription medicines are sold in child-resistant packages. These are not child-proof. Cannabis product packaging is also not child-proof. If your child has an accidental ingestion, don't panic. Call the Poison Control Center at 1-800-222-1222. They'll talk you through what to do and let you know if you should bring your child to the hospital. Accidental cannabis ingestion can cause a list of symptoms like slurred speech, fast heart rate, intense sleepiness, anxiety, nausea, vomiting, dizziness, and poor coordination. It is unlikely to cause a suppressed breathing rate. Remember that ingesting cannabis can take up to 30 to 60 minutes to have an effect and last on average, an average of four to six hours with residual effects until the next day. Most importantly, if your child is old enough to have a conversation about cannabis, talk about it. Let them know why people use it and what will happen if they ingest too much. Finally, 
don't go to WebMD for your information on cannabis ingestion in children. They don't know what they're talking about. This is Dr. Jean Talleyrand for the State of Cannabis News Hour. I'm happy to answer any questions on accidental cannabis ingestion and children. A friend of the show, Whitney Beatty, has a company called Apothecary, and she's got these really cool boxes that are humidors for cannabis, but they also have locks on them. So I suggest checking those out. They're amazing. And I actually have one of those. And also buy my book. Point by point and and discounting um, all those negatives and bad misinformation. Thanks. Amen. I want to turn that into a PSA. Thank you. Absolutely. Let's keep smoking the news. Let's do it. All right. We'll come reader with a golden bong from California to Michigan and now back to Cali. From the D to the OC, she brought it back, back to Cali. Cali, y'all, CEO of the original Breeders League and mother of two with the ability to spawn more due to her fertilian breeding abilities. It's none other than Priscilla. <laughs> Priscilla Agoncillo. <laughs> Thanks, Jason. All right, so my story today is indica or sativa, how weed labels mislead stoners. Okay. Uh, the most common ways cannabis cultivars are categorized uh, could be misleading according to a new study. What are indica, sativa, and hybrids? Well, you've got three basic choices. Uh, like I mentioned earlier, the indica, sativa, and hybrid. Um, at some point, there were initial morphological differences in those plants that growers uh, thought mapped to different chemicals in the plant and thus different effects in the plants. That's why we ended up with indica, sativa, and hybrid as the three broad categorizations. And you'll see that um, throughout all of the, you know, different uh, dispensaries and stores that you go into when you look at a menu. So what did the study find? The indica sativa hybrid classification system may not be very helpful when it comes to determining the actual effect of the cannabis that you are taking. This new study was published in PLOS 1, or PLOS 1, by the University of Colorado Boulder. And researchers, um, uh, as well as Leafly, looked at 89,923 lab samples sent to cannabis labs in six different states. These labs analyzed the samples for THC and CBD, the main active ingredients in cannabis, as well as terpenes, the aromatic molecules, to see if those samples correlated with the labels for indica, sativa, and high hybrids. They then looked at specific cultivar names, for example, like Blue Dream, of which there are over 6,000 entered into just the Leafly database alone. So what about the names? They didn't line up with the Indica, Sativa, and Hybrid designations, but cultivar names can correlate to the terpenes and the THC and thus the effects in cannabis. So instead, the study found that there are three main terpene types or clusters across all cannabis in America that are only loosely related to indica sativa and hybrid. So we're learning that not all terpenes are created equal. Minor ones may have outsized effects uh, compared to their weight in people's bodies, um, and everyone's really different how they process it. Another caveat is that there are more that more terpenes in cannabis, and they're not nece- there. There are more than terpenes in cannabis, and it's not necessarily being tested. So scientists are finding things like uh, volatile sulfur cul- uh, compounds um, or phenols. Uh, the lab standards also vary across the board. So we're very much in the infancy stage of cannabis science. So if, indus, if indica, sativa, and hybrid aren't working for you, um, there's another layer that you can go down, and that is into the terpenes, where you might find things that work uh, for your system better than the old classification system. Uh, at the end of the day, the best way to decide is use your nose and take note of what responds to your body best. And also have fun with trying out different cultivars. I mean, you know, you're not going to you're not going to find out what works best for you until you try everything and, you know, take a conscientious note about what uh, it is that works best for whatever you're trying to achieve. This is Priscilla reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. And remember, everybody, Indica Sativa is lazy marketing. I was going to say, I think a good way forward is I think what the Emerald Cup did was a, a really good job um, this past uh 
uh, event they recently did at uh, the way the judging was handled with uh, using terpene profiles. Um, and I, th I think that's a good way going forward. But I think we have to move away the, from that shorthand, like the article says. Uh, Priscilla, thanks for bringing that. You do the relight. You are tuned into the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Often opinions expressed in the State of Cannabis News Hour are those of the individual speakers and not those of any other speaker, the State of Cannabis, or its members. The statements made in the State of Cannabis News Hour do not constitute legal or accounting advice, and the State of Cannabis and the speakers make no representation regarding the legal status of any substance in any country, area, or territory, or of any authorities. The views expressed in this room do not establish any fiduciary relationship. The sponsorships of the State of Cannabis News Hour do not imply or constitute any endorsement by the State of Cannabis or the expression of any opinion whatsoever on the part of the State of Cannabis or any speaker. Viewer discretion advised. Let's keep smoking the news. She's a Northern California-based pot-smoking PhD, remaining perpetually optimistic in the midst of cannabis chaos. Coming to the stage next is a political economist and the founder of Mahajan Consulting, Manika Mahajan. What you got for us today, Manika? Good morning, everyone. Happy Thursday. I'm bringing you a story on threats to Canadian craft cannabis, and this is written by Amanda Siebert and published in Forbes. A new report sounds alarm bells of a financial state of emergency in Canada, where 60% of production square footage may be insolvent within the next year, absent immediate reforms. Why? Because the impact of regulatory structures is threatening the small legacy and craft businesses. Meanwhile, some larger operators are also unprofitable, but if they have enough investor dollars, they may be poised to wait out price compression. The bottom line in this story is that few Canadian producers have, viable, have a viable business, and some are more vulnerable to lose it all than others the craft cultivators that have put it all on the line to go legal. First, to set the stage, I'm just gonna give you some background on the Canadian industry. In Canada, excise duties or sin taxes are paid by producers at either $1 per gram or 10% of their sale price on dried cannabis, whichever is higher. And for comparison, in most legal US jurisdictions, cannabis taxation tends to happen at the point of sale. California currently does both, but it's uh, currently considering ending a tax on producers. 10% is not actually 10%, however, and the effective excise duty is as much as 20 to 35% for smaller cultivators. Most of the over 850 licensed cultivators, processors, and sellers in the Canadian cannabis market are smaller, privately owned companies. So with that in mind, here are some highlights from a new report by Tantalus Lab CEO Dan Sutton, CFO Lucas Jenkins, and Hanway Associates, Head of Advisory Charlotte Boyd. A new report based on three years of market data claims that Canada's own excise tax regime is the greatest systemic threat to cannabis producers. The authors wrote that, quote, current policy centralizes economic benefit to a small number of large beneficiaries, companies that can wait out price compression while their smaller counterparts compete for limited SKUs and struggle to pay their employees. But even among larger companies, success is hard to come by. Quote, unfortunately, it is no exaggeration to say that less than 5% of firms of any size have generated consistent and survivable income to, since the outset of legalization, and that 60% or more of ca Canadian cannabis production square footage could be on the path to insolvency in the next 12 months. The authors make it clear that their analysis led them to declare nothing short of a financial state of emergency. According to Sutton, one of the authors, craft cultivators from across the country have reached out to express their frustration with many communicating that they had to make profound sacrifices in order to transition to the legal system, only to realize that there is no available pathway to build a self-sustaining business. We're in a position where our sales are well over $1 million per month, and we still have difficulty breaking even, primarily due to the excise burden, says one craft grower quoted, excuse me, one craft grower quoted in the report. We run as lean as we can and are driving efficiencies quite well, with the productivity that is required for every labor hour to offset the excise burden, even at the volume of product that we're moving, is barely achievable, end quote. Another grower says, if the government does not make dramatic and systemic changes to the excise regime, every family business and non-public entity in the cannabis space will have their pockets emptied by the government and their savings as well. Looking to other craft industries and legal cannabis jurisdictions for solutions, the report proposes the following solution. A two-year excise tax moratorium while a new structure is established. After the moratorium, the team at Stanford Craft proposes reforming the $1 per gram minimum threshold and moving to a graduated excise duty based on sales per month, mimicking the alcohol taxation model in Canada. 
It also recommends the implementation of a tax credit based on aggregated volume of production. I know there was a lot there to unpack. This is about a 14 page report, so you can read the whole thing if you are interested in learning more about this. I'm curious if we have any craft growers from Canada in the audience, please raise your hands to come up on stage. What's your insight on the state of cannabis in Canada? I'm Menika Mahajan reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. We've got Nate up from the audience. Nate, did you want to weigh in on Menika's headline? Uh, yes. Can you guys hear me? Yes. Yes. Okay, good. Hey, Nate. Um, so I'm a craft grower in California and I'm originally Canadian. So I, I'm not, I don't grow there directly, but they have a pre-legalization 2018. It's just like California. They had a great market, very easy to sell, and they just messed it up and you have people like aurora and canopy that just build these insane uh, square footage that they're now all shutting down that just flooded the market the same as california and actually california is facing the same problems and today a lot of equity business owners all people of color are rallying in sacramento to get the state to lower the excise tax because newsom wants to increase it from 15 percent to 19 percent and that stuff can put, especially people of color, small dispensaries out of business of having to pay that ahead of time. So please support them. As a craft cultivator, every little bit helps. Our profit margins are very small. So thank you for the Nate. Yes. Nate, Nate I, be I believe in that bill and the governor's proposal. Um, it immediately, uh, upon approval of that, it shifts the, the onus of the excise tax to be paid by the retailer just as you would normally pay sales tax so after the sale so it wouldn't be a cost out of the retailer's pocket once it is increased and okay. nate thank you for bringing up the rally it's today at two o'clock in sacramento so pay attention to uh the socials and like and share and support their effort if you can't be there in person but let's keep smoking the news all right if bono had i anaconda his name would be eric Tesmareta. But Bono doesn't have an anaconda because he's got a stunt double named Eric Hislereta, known for his good deeds and being a true steward to the outdoor plant. This freedom-fighting farmer's friend and Bono's award-winning writer, journalist, and event producer, as well as a content ninja. Here to give it to you straight, it's Eric Hislereta. <laughs> Thank you, Jason, a.k.a. the Fifth Beetle over there in the U.K. Uh, hey, everybody, great to be here today. My headline is from... UK publication iNews, and it's Spain looks at legalizing medicinal cannabis and a million and a billion dollar industry to grow it. Uh, since we were discussing Spain earlier this week, I thought I'd follow up with this piece that gets into some current political and societal movement on cannabis there. Uh, jumping in, Spain is set to become the latest European country to decriminalize the use of cannabis for medicinal use, with some eyeing a route for Europe's biggest illegal cannabis growing nation to become the hub of a legal industry. As law enforcement gets to grip with hemp fever, with legitimate farmers falling afoul of strict rules on which part of the plant could be sold, a parliamentary commission is to consider legalizing the use of the drug to create conditions like multiple sclerosis or epilepsy. In 2018, Britain changed the law to allow the use of cannabis for medicinal purposes, but it requires a prescription from a doctor. In recent years, a series of European countries have taken the same measure, including France, Italy, Germany, Romania, and the Czech Republic. In the United States, 37 states have also decriminalized the drug for specific medical use, while 19 have gone further for recreational use. The Spanish pro uh, proposal is likely to garner support from the socialist government, their junior far-left coalition partner, Unidos Podemos, and a series of smaller regional parties. However, it is likely to face fierce opposition from the conservative uh, opposition People's Party and the hard-right Vox Party. Cannabis occupies a legal gray area under Spanish law. The drug was decriminalized for personal use in a private place. As long as a user has only 100 grams or less, cannabis clubs in which smokers can bring their own supplies attract tourists in cities like Barcelona. Uh, cultivation for tracking, however, sorry, cultivation or trafficking, however, remains a criminal offense punishable with fines of up to 30,000 euros and prison sentences of between three and six years. Supporters of the law stress this is not a matter of party politics, but a way of helping patients who have benefited from the drugs available on the market in other countries. 
Recreational consumption has nothing to do with medical consumption. We're going to take control of this debate now for good ends, said Daniel Viondi, a socialist MP. A poll in April 2021 for the Center for Sociological Investigations, a respected survey organization, found that 90% of Spaniards supported the use of cannabis for therapeutic purposes. Patients should be in the hands of the state and doctors, not drug traffickers. Carola Perez, the president of the Spanish Observatory of Medicinal Cannabis, told iNews. Spain is the biggest producer of cannabis in Europe, according to police data, as the country benefits from a warm climate to grow the plant and plentiful space in rural and rural areas for illegal plantations. If cannabis is legalized for medicinal use, it could prompt a boom for the industry, which be controlled by the Spanish medical agency. A recent report by the Autonomous University of Barcelona estimated that the value of the cannabis industry was 3.3 billion euros per year. It comes to Spain as in the grip of hemp fever as farmers started growing this crop instead of tomatoes or corn because it's more lucrative. Uh, so I'm going to say, uh, Viva España, glad you're going medical and beyond. I'm going to add a little historical note. Spain is the first place in Europe to have high THC cannabis, although other areas had low THC cannabis fiber for fiber for centuries. When the Moors invaded and colonized Spain in the 8th century, they brought hash and high THC with them, giving Spain 1,500 years of hash cred. And that's what I've got today. I'm Eric for the State of Cannabis uh, News Hour. Gracias for having me up. Great coverage of this, Eric, and I, I think I might be one of the few people on uh, on the team that has not been to Spain or been to to, to Spanibus, but I'm um, very very interested in going out there and uh, checking out one of these hundreds of uh, cannabis lounges that they uh, purportedly have. They are fucking popping, Rico, and I'll tell you what. I'm probably going to be in Spain in the coming days, and I will broadcast live from one of the consumption lounges, just so you can imagine that you're there too. Jason, uh, which one's your favorite? I don't think my favorite is even open anymore, but I really liked HQ. I really liked Strain Hunters, and uh, there was one that was called Chaco Blocko or something like that. That that was a fucking really, really, really favorite. Oh, yeah, spot. yeah. I like, I like that one too. It's, it's not Chaco Blocko. I think it's just Chaco. We should all follow you there, Jason. And I just added that little historical note because Spain just does have such a deep cannabis history there, um, again, introduced by the Moors. Uh, so it goes back over a thousand years. So um, a good place to experience hash, concentrates, uh, and just uh, lot, lots of goodness over there. You got to go, Rico. Oh, also, too, I cannot forget about La Palada. La Palada? No, no La, La Calada. With a K, bro, Calada. Okay. All right. All right. Well, there's 700 to choose from, so. But I only go. I just to want to go the, the one that, that Jason's been to. I only go to yeah, the best go. one <laughs> where the hype is real and the weed is all Californian. <laughs> and I can yeah. get reviews Lock-a-lata. and let y'all know how how good they are. Lacalada <laughs> has uh, you could press your own rosin there. Yeah, kind of neat. You can also you can also go and see my boy Jack at the plug. Ah, uh, yeah. Let's keep it moving, Jason. Oh, yeah. All right, guys. All right, hold go. on. This is mine. I think, I think I'm up next. This, this I, I is mine. You My were, bad. But you know what? I'll gladly go next. Take it, Jason. Why don't you take it? I'm, I'm in a giving mood today. Why don't you grab this one? Go ahead. Amazing. Boy. Coming, to, coming to you live from Hyde Park at the Jubilee. The, this beard was born and bred in Michigan. Maybe that's why this beard commands such a presence, because, baby, it's cold outside. So cold that the beard was compelled to move to sunny Long Beach, California, where the beard received a law degree known in the bar exam as the Brandon Beard Award for high scores. This intellectual IP attorney and CEO of Fruit Slabs is none other than Brandon Dorsey. Let's go, Brandon. Thank you so much for the colorful introduction, Jason. Today, my headline comes from MJ Biz Daily. It's deadline nears to weigh in on FDA cannabinoid supplement review. Less than a week remains for cannabinoid manufacturers to submit comments and data to the science board of the Food Drug Administration to consider whether to allow extracts such as CBD into foods and dietary supplements. On June 14th, a panel of nutrition and drug safety experts will discuss challenges in evaluating the safety of dietary supplement and food ingredients with predicted pharmacological activity, and the panel is expected to focus heavily on hemp-derived CBD. Public comments are being accepted through June 7th, 
And the FDA has held open a public docket on the safety of CBD products since 2019. But nonetheless, they have maintained that there is not enough research to show that CBD and other cannabis extracts are safe for human consumption. This meeting on the 14th is the first review since the United States Hemp Roundtable sent the FDA their results of a study that disputed some of, that disputed some of the FDA's alleged concerns about CBD, including the largely baseless claims that CBD could cause liver toxicity and lower testosterone in males. Former FDA officials suggested that if the Hemp Roundtable is deemed sufficient, the FDA could consider allowing over-the-counter CBD in lower doses than those found in prescription drugs like Epidiolex. The article was brief, but points to a critical juncture in our nation's cannabinoid regulatory regime. The FDA's pretty unsubstantiated position that CBD cannot be generally regarded as safe reeks of cronyism and pharmaceutical special interests, but the data had not been there to refute claims by Epidiolex's makers that high dosages of CBD can cause liver toxicity or other problems. And cannabinoids are so poorly understood by the FDA and have a negative stigma that it has been easy for the FDA to sit in their castle and throw their stones. But hopefully the day of reckoning is coming and pharmaceuticals technical stranglehold on legal access to cannabis as a therapeutic ingestible is going to go up in smoke. This is Brandon Dorsky reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. So uh, click the link and make a comment. It really does make a difference. They were the the FDA was trying to uh, schedule kratom, and they got over eighty thousand comments, and it stopped them from doing it. So this is important, folks. Time to be an I activist. I don't think the eighty thousand comments is what stopped them from doing it. I think they just used that as a reason to give another reason for why they weren't going to do it in the first place. It helped. It helps. Comment. Let's keep it moving. Come on, Rico. This Wisconsin this Wisconsin-rooted, Fresno-based raptivist is repping the strong black conservative voice mainstream media, and Joseph Robinette Biden does not want you to know exists. But the haters and race baiters will not black out the black side of liberty constantly exposed by this next Fresno City Councilman coming to the stage for us. It's Nicholas Wildstar. What you got for us, my man? Yeah, yay, Rico. Happy International Sex Workers Day, State of Canada, bitches. It's also National Rocky Road Ice Cream Day and National Rotisserie Chicken Day, which means there's no better day than today to enjoy some ice cream chicken and cheap hookers, if you can find them. North Carolina residents may soon be able to add cannabis to that list since medical marijuana is one of the two cannabis bills approved by NC lawmakers. The North Carolina House voted Wednesday to remove hemp from the state's controlled substance list. Bill sponsors House Bill 455 keeps state law in step with federal treatment of hemp. By moving it off the State Controlled Substances Act, it allows for the legal selling and transporting of hemp. What we are doing is saving an industry that has spent millions upon millions of dollars already said Republican Senator Brent Jackson, who is also one of the primary co-sponsors of the Farm Act in the Senate. The Farm Act spells out the differences between hemp and marijuana cannabis, explaining that hemp does not contain THC, which is the chemical that makes you high, and the hemp products under this act would include rope, textiles, oils, and other products. There are currently 1,500 licensed hemp growers in North Carolina. Starting this year, industry producers must comply with the federal USDA domestic hemp production rule. Meanwhile, a North Carolina Senate committee passed a bill on Wednesday that would legalize the use of medical marijuana under the NC Controlled Substances Act. The NC Compassionate Act Care Act now goes to the Senate floor for a full vote, possibly as early as today. Given Senate leader Phil Berger's indication earlier this week that he wants to bring it for a full chamber vote, Senate Bill 711 would allow cannabis to higher, with higher levels of THC to treat debilitating conditions such as cancer and PTSD. The bill offers extensive regulations on everything from advertising to testing, licensing, and packaging. If passed by both chambers and signed into law, North Carolina would join 36 states and four territories that allow for the me medical use of cannabis. Republican Senator Bill Rabin is a, is a primary sponsor of SB 711 
and is a cancer survivor. He says that he and Bill Ryder spent much of the time researching other, uh, how other state legalized medical marijuana and where they may have gone wrong. He told lawmakers that this bill has proper safeguards. Quote, it is nothing more it is nothing more than trying to help people with care than they need um, that they need and augment their treatments as decided upon by a patient and a physician, said Rabin. Uh, patients will be allowed to possess 1.5 ounces at a time. Prescribing physicians must take a 10-hour class on how to dose and use medical marijuana, must see the patient in person and conduct annual reviews to ensure that they remain qualified. The bill also limits the number of written certifications a physician may issue at any given time. From here, the Compassionate Care Act goes to the full Senate for approval and, if passed, on to the House committees where it may face resistance as members try to push it to a long session issue. Reporting with the State of Cannabis News Hour, this is Nick Wildstar, a.k.a. The Governor. Speak now or forever. Hold your peace and I'm up out this bitch. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so being from that area, um, being from Virginia, I have a, a lot of history in North Carolina, too. I'm really, really interested to see how this uh, how this whole process plays out, because it's going to my guess is it's going to be uh, um, very heavily handed to these uh, politicians by the tobacco industry down there um, as tobacco road. They run absolutely everything down there. And um, it'll be interesting to see where tobacco goes in in their place with cannabis and i think that's going to be the epicenter of absolutely everything in the south going forward north carolina where you at <laughs> pd pablo shout out well, we might be seeing yeah, uh, government, yeah, government issue spliffs we need pd pablo to comment j cole man j cole let's keep it moving though we only got a, a couple of minutes left jason you want to introduce the next all right coming up next she's in the focused on bridging the gap between cannabis entertainment and psychedelics coming next to the stage is the founder of the cannabis blog and podcast shall we toke it's none other than shalina panu thanks so much jason good morning everyone my name is shalina and my headline for today is the cannabis supper club is popping up all over la the Cannabis Supper Club is a twice-monthly pop-up event that has been going around L.A. since 2017. They showcase diverse cannabis brands, chefs, and cannabis. Mark Liebel is a mastermind behind these pop-ups. He tells Forbes, to elevate the dining experience with cannabis, I really fell in love with it. The Supper Club consists of a range of cannabis brands such as THC Design, Skunk Magazine, and the fashionista's Elise McRoberts. The Supper Club's past event was held at the 91 Club, which is a cannabis-friendly event space in downtown L.A. Restaurant Amigo Amores Chef's uh, created a unique Italian meets Spanish fusion for the event. Chef and owner of Amiga Amore, Danielle Duranzeca, tells Forbes about how she created the menu along with using cannabis. I like to get widely creative. Amiga Amores is my husband and I, so it's Mex Italian. We usually smoke a fat joint and go for a walk, and I get excited about the menu. But really, it's about certain pairings. Citrus flavors that really go with Mexican flavors like aqua chile, playing with those bright notes, uh, Duranzeca says. Um, guests at the events were given the choice to add roughly 25 milligrams of an edible tincture to their dish, while THC Design passed out joints to pair with the Intermezzo course. Uh, the Hashanese's Elise McRoberts is also doing pop-up events of their own, combining both hash and cannabis extracts, but has expanded into larger-scale consumption gatherings and weddings. They partnered with uh, Chow Farms, which is based in Humboldt, for this Supper Club event. Uh, McRoberts states to Forbes, it's really exciting because I specialize in working with legacy operators. I'm happy to have a legacy hash uh, uh, maker whose work I can help get out to the people. It's about promoting the sun-grown small farmer, one guy growing an acre, making amazing hash. It's exciting that I get to work with something that I love. Have you attended a pop-up cannabis infused event? My name is Shalina and I'm reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Thanks for mentioning this, Shalina. Uh, I actually went to this event. It was, uh, it was a wonderful experience. There were also many other sponsors and cannabis brands there. Uh, guests were treated to fruit slabs and received complimentary fruit slabs. There was also a Get My High, a nano-infused uh, beverage mixture, and the CEO was there making Paloma mocktails for the guests. And then Hempire provided grinders and rolling trays and a whole bunch of other stuff. Uh, it was a really great time and beautiful space. And I believe that the 91, uh, 
I believe the Cannabis Supper Club is going to continue doing regular events at the 91 Club. Uh, the Forbes article did not mention Daniel Spillane, who is the owner of the 91 Club, and he worked very closely with Mark to make sure that the event came together. No, big, big, big props to them. So um, let's, let's keep it moving and bringing us home, this badass San Francisco-based Cannamon with the voice of an angel and a list of titles longer than the CVS receipt is the co-founder of the International Cannabis Bar Association, chair of the Bar Association of San Francisco Cannabis Law Section, and founder of the San Fran Equity Applicant Pro Bono Legal Project. What you got for us, Lara? All right. Well, thank you so much for that, Rico. Happy Pride Month, all y'all. I, I do want to give a shout out for that. Ordinarily, I would open Pride Month with an article about the intersection of cannabis and the LGBTQ plus community. But I saw this really interesting update to a story Brandon reported on a couple of weeks ago about the Department of Justice's stance on a pot case being unusually weak, the high court was told. This is by Sam Reisman for Law 360. Uh, apparently, you may recall, actually, when uh, Brandon reported that um, the DOJ essentially weighed in on a request from the Supreme Court with regard to whether or not it should look at a couple of lower court cases or state court cases involving the implementation of workers' compensation claims um, for uh, medical marijuana patients. And the DOJ said the judgments below are correct for the straightforward reason that when a federal law, such as the CSA, Controlled Substances Act, prohibits possession of a particular item, it preempts state law requiring a private party to subsidize that, uh, subsidize that item. But that's a position that we know isn't entirely accurate. And we've even discussed 10th Amendment and states' rights here on the State of Cannabis News Hour, even earlier this week. So one of the petitioners has responded, calling this position unusually weak, untenable, and basically deriding it as uh, legally unsound and completely false as a mechanism to um, to, to sort of, uh, I'm sorry, protect the federal government from having to defend both its hands off on state-run cannabis um, uh, policies and its um, deeply rooted war on drugs. So it's a really, it's an interesting article. I encourage have much time to go over this, but it is, it, it really exposes how we may potentially see some movement at the high court when we thought previously that the high court might actually not have anything to do with legalization. So my name is Lara DeCaro reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Read up, vote, Love you, love. What a pro. Thank you so much, Laura, right on the top of the hour. That was a great show. If you missed any of it, you can catch it anywhere you get your podcasts. Please subscribe and leave us a review. A big thank you to all of the correspondents that comb through all the headlines each day to bring us just what we need to know. A big thank you to Rico and Jason for co-producing the show and our pinup girl, Zsa Simone Brown. Thank you, audience, for being an important part of our show. You've, you've had your daily dose. Now go out there and get them. You've been tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we collectively move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Start your morning on a high note and join us every weekday, 9 a.m. Pacific time for the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Bye. Hey, kids. Today we have a very special guest, Officer Dan. Hi, kids. We're going to learn everything you kids need to know about the police. <laughs> yeah. Number one, police officers have cool lights on top of their cars. Super cool. Number two, police officers wear neat badges. Pretty neat. Number three, police officers have no legal obligation to protect you from imminent harm. It's true. I can sit back and watch as someone stabs you repeatedly. Ugh. Yeah, that really happened. On a subway train in New York. The victim himself had to disarm the serial killer who the cops were there to find. Look it up. It's settled law. Yeah, it's kind of amazing. Number four, if you're too smart, you cannot be a police officer. Score too high on an entrance exam and some places won't let you into the police academy. They think you'll get bored and quit. Number five. The more arrests an officer makes, the more court appearances are required, which means more overtime and larger retirement benefits. Oh yeah, we call that pension spiking. I can retire at 45 with more income than the mayor. It's a perverse incentive structure. And I can keep that pension, even if I commit murder. Ha <laughs> ha! 
Number six. Some police officers get to work with doggies. The only dogs we don't shoot on sight. Number seven. Police officers can violate your rights and get away with it. That's called qualified immunity. Number eight. Becoming a police officer takes a lot of training. It took me three and a half months to become a police officer. It took Mr. Barber two years and three exams to become a licensed hairstylist. Yeah, well, scissors are sharp. Number nine. Cops aren't required to know the law even as they arrest people for breaking it. I can pull you over and search your vehicle without any legal justification. As long as I think I have justification, anything I find is admissible in court. Are you serious? Is that real? We have very good unions. Holy shit. Number 10, police officers get paid with our taxes. Police misconduct is also paid through your taxes. So we paid you to protect us. Yeah. You don't legally have to do. Yep, that's settled law. And then when you accidentally or intentionally violate us, you pay for all that too. Wow, that's really sh dude. The police car has a cool siren! Ha <laughs> ha! See you tomorrow. Hear you tomorrow. Bye! Hey, what are you still doing here? The show's over. You just don't want to leave, do you? I know. We love you too. Help us grow by grabbing some of our merch. We've got hats, bags, hoodies, water bottles, all the standards. It would really mean a lot. Go to justsaycare.org backslash shop today. Really, I mean it, today. With the supply chain issues, you might get it by Christmas. The good news is that inflation will be so bad, you'll be locked into a low, low price. Remember, justsaycare.org. Thanks. Okay, go listen to another podcast. Bye.